0: Hi, I'm Joe Quirk, welcome to the Blue Frontiers podcast about seasteading the environment, special economic zones and innovation in science, technology, governance and society itself. People can do almost everything better. That's why Blue Frontiers will provide innovators with sustainable, peaceful floating islands based on voluntary cooperation and deploy them around the world To help communities adapt to sea level change and promote emergent and self-organized ways of living free at sea. This is the Founders Series of the Blue Frontiers podcast. Today we have Randy Hankin, Managing Director and Co-Founder of Blue Frontiers. I've worked with Randy for more than six years and I remember when the Floating Island Project was just a seed in his mind. He studied all the talents attracted to seasteading and conceived a pragmatic strategy for how it could work. In this podcast, Randy tells the story of all the previous seasteading attempts that were necessary to reach the point where we are now, after having signed with a national government to build the first seasteading. Now, here's your host, the Sea Evangelist, Natalie Mesa Garcia.
1: Hello, seasteaders. I'm here with Randy Henken, co founder and managing director of Blue Frontiers and managing director of the Sea Institute, which are the company and the non profit that are building the Floating Island project, thanks to or after the signature of a memorandum of understanding with the French Polynesia government. How are you, Randy?
2: I'm good. How about. Thanks for having me, Natalie.
1: No, thanks for being here. Thanks
2: for being our C-Vangelist and making all these podcasts.
1: No, thanks for giving me really cool t-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> so, Randy, you were involved as the Executive Director of the steering Institute for five to six years now. That's
2: right. I started in 2011, and within a year after that, I became the Executive Director. And I was the Executive Director up until the time we started Blue Frontiers. And for complicated legal reasons, I am now a Managing Director, not an Executive Director, as well as the managing director of Blue Frontiers.
1: Okay, so let's start from the basics here. What is seasteading?
2: Well, I hope that most people who are listening to this already know, but <laughs> I'll give you my short, uh, my short answer to this. You know, seasteading is the plan to develop new communities, new cities, new nations at sea uh, that float and are interchangeable and are modular and can grow organically and split up and allow people opportunities to explore new forms of society that cannot exist uh, in, in land-based communities. Uh, uh, one of the first things I ever did when I joined the SeaSide Institute, first as a communication director, was submit a, uh, an email campaign, I ran an email campaign, uh, to the dictionary, to Webster's Dictionary, oh. saying that seasteading should be a word. Wow. And I got an email back saying, well, well, thank you for this consideration, blah, blah, blah. blah. And uh, and just this last year, um, I got another email saying that (laughs) seasteading is officially a word in Uh the Oxford English Dictionary now.
1: Wow. Yeah, I saw it. They even draw a very cute, beautiful seastead.
2: Okay.
1: Did you see it? Uh, Yeah, I've seen it. Nice. Mm -hmm. So what what is the relation between the Seasteading Institute and Blue Frontiers?
2: Sure. So the Seasteading Institute is a nonprofit. Uh, It's... You know, based in the United States, but it has an international community of support. Uh, it was started in 2008, it's, um, you know, and it was under the vehicle of the Citizen Institute that we were able to get to where we are today. And I think we're going to talk about this more in a moment, but uh, after we signed the deal with the government of French Polynesia, we then uh, started Blue Frontiers because we always have known that we would need a real Company that you could take investment to actually develop seasteads that uh, the the amount of money that it's going to take to have this floating Island project uh, become a reality cannot be done on donations.
1: Uh-huh. so a nonprofit can only accept donations
2: right I mean nonprofits they can also sell things themselves, but when we're talking about the kind of money that this project will cost, which is many tens of millions of dollars. The reality of doing that without giving investment opportunities to people yes. uh, did not make sense.
1: The name Blue Frontiers, how was it chosen?
2: Uh, well, it was chosen out of a long, long list of names <laughs> and, and many hours of uh, brainstorming and debate. And I will give the credit to our co-founder, Igor Ryzhikov, who was very creative and came up with this one. And we loved it because it captured two important things. Uh, one, blue, the oceans, yes. and two, new, being a new frontier. Yes. So we liked it.
1: It also gave uh, way to the, na- the cocktail.
2: It did give way <laughs> to the cocktail. So also Igor <laughs> Rajakov uh, suggested uh, during the first seasteading gathering in Tahiti back in May that uh, Blue Frontier should have its own cocktail when <laughs> they were sitting at a bar one day, and it should be blue. So, this past uh, couple of months while we've been here in Tahiti, we've been experimenting with what that could be, and at our Tahitian holiday soiree that we held in Tahiti um, right before this podcast, we served many Blue Frontiers, (laughs) and I'll I'll give out the secret recipe. It's uh, vodka, (laughs) mineral water, lime, and blue carousel.
1: Awesome. I had it. I like it. You like it? Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. So, a lot of the press articles because there have been so many press articles it's unbelievable that some or most make a direct link with peter thiel because peter put a part of the initial funding but funding what is the link today with peter thiel to which extent it's his involvement with the sistering institute or with the floating island project
2: mm-hmm. so peter is brilliant and he's um you know, involved in hundreds, if not thousands, of projects, and his role in these projects as a venture capitalist or a philanthropist is to get them started. You know, he he kickstarts things. So we're one of the many things that he could kickstart it. And as the story, th- what happened is, uh, Patry Freeman uh, was uh, writing a blog about SeaSteading for many years, and in 2008, a friend of Peter's invited Patry to come over for lunch and tell Peter about Seasteading. And at that meeting, Peter uh, said, this is a great idea, I want you to pursue it. And he pulled out his checkbook and gave Patri a $500,000 check and said, uh, I want you to start art, a nonprofit and explore whether Seasteading can be a reality or not. And Peter was uh, one of the founding board members. So he's a co- you know, essentially he's a co-founder of the Seasteading Institute. He's one of the founding board members. And he was actively involved over the first few years, uh, but then his involvement um, became lessened in terms of his actual time that he was contributing. He continued to fund the CSUN Institute through 2014. Um, and he was very generous in letting us know that uh, you know, the year before is like, I, I kickstart things. i never expected to have a nonprofit just live off of me for you know, ad infinitum. At one day you have to fly on your own. So he gave us plenty of warning. He was willing to match our donations that year, and um, what I was able to do was use the the generosity that he had, had provided us by you know, giving us uh, numerous donations. It was about 1.5 million dollars in total. Uh, but the very last year, he also had a matching grant, and I maximized that matching grant and was able to um, stockpile our resources. And at the same time you know, when I first came on to the Seaside Institute, there was about maybe 12 of us on the team that were paid. Me? And over time, so uh, the, uh, you know, Patry, who was the executive director, and then this other gentleman, James Hogan, uh, they had left to go explore an opportunity in Honduras with a free city project. Another couple of gentlemen uh, left to go start Blue Seed, which we can talk about later, but it was, or I'll just tell you real quick, Blue Seed was a company that tried to, uh, develop a offshore uh, off the coast of Silicon Valley, a boat that would act as a seastead and would allow people without um, visas to work near Silicon Valley. Um, awesome. So so the amount of staff started to step down uh, right right away. and I put us on a really slow burn. and it was in 2013 that um, I concluded that uh, you know we couldn't just be cheerleaders for seasteading that we had to make it happen ourselves. And I was able to leverage this money that Peter uh, helped bring to us um, and, and, and run on a very efficient budget to get us to where we were in a situation to be able to sign the deal with the government of French Polynesia. Wow. Um,
1: wow. It's been nine years since the in- Seasteading Institute was created. And you mentioned Blue City, but I know that there was another project, part of the history, called Clubstead. What is Clubstead? What yeah. was it? What happened with it?
2: So in the, uh, you know, the first iteration, so I've uh, often thought of the Seastead Institute going through uh, three generations. And, and truthfully, I'd put it on our fourth generation now. Mm-hmm. So in the first generation of seasteading, the goals were to do research and build a community. And the research was looking for how do you develop you know, independent nations at sea that are safe and comfortable and affordable. And if you're going to be out at sea, the best thing to be on is a semi-submersible rig. This is what they use for oil rigs because these are built so that they're ballasted above the water and waves can go underneath them and they can withstand major storms that way. Yes. So uh, the Sea Center Institute uh, hired a firm to develop a um, plans for a semi-submersible rig that would be a hotel. And the idea was they could put the hotel off the coast of Southern California, and it would be the very first seastead. So they spent, you know, considerable energy uh, researching that, investing it. But then, I, I honestly don't know why they didn't move it, push it forward after they did it. I, I, I will make a, um, a general guess. And the general guess is there probably wasn't a market demand. The, the the idea of it sounded great, but when you when push came to shove, the uh, the need to uh, Build it and pay for it um, was um, just more than uh, you know they could find a market for, it. and to get somebody to uh, expend the kind of money, the investment would take. I think that we look at it being about a quarter billion dollars.
1: A quarter of a billion dollars. Yeah. Because it's out right. there and it's too expensive in the open ocean.
2: Right. I mean, so to construct one alone is going to be like a hundred and about two hundred million dollars to build it. And then you have to do operations of it, and you would have to anchor it, and you'd have to, you know, maintain it. And, and oil rigs are made to last about 20 years before they have to come out of the sea, and they'll rust out, and
1: so, yeah. Wow. Um, I know also that you have a very close relation to Burning Man. You've been there 14 years now, and what some people don't know is that Burning Man has a similar on-water version called ephemerile, which is... Um, next year, expecting more or less 500 people. What is ephemeral and what is the connection to seasteading and to the floating island project?
2: So, it's either 2009 or 2010 that uh, Patri and the team at the Seastead Institute decided that one of the first things they should do to encourage the future of seasteading is get people excited about seasteading by having a party. And, <laughs> and that, uh, you know, if you had a good event, uh, you know, if you go to Burning Man, you don't yeah. want it to end, uh-huh. uh, you know, so maybe if you had a really good ephemer- uh, event at sea, you wouldn't want it to end. Uh-huh. And the idea was to start um, small uh, up in the Sacramento Delta, uh, which where, you know, is river, basically, uh, and then eventually come out of the San Francisco Bay, and then eventually move out into the open ocean and have year-round events. Uh, So the first year they got together, they got a bunch of plywood and barrels and they built floating platforms for (laughs) a long weekend party and they dressed up like pirates and they had a a great time. There were maybe a hundred some people there. Uh The next year, they wanted to do it in the San Francisco Bay on a barge and and they wanted to sell tickets, but they could not get any insurance company to sell them an insurance policy. For a reasonable price that would make it so they could still sell tickets. And what happened at that point is the community said we are having so much fun with this, we should just do it again. Mm-hmm. Let's you know, let's go back up to Delta and do it again. No one dressed up as Smurfs. Um, there's probably people <laughs> dressed up as the Smurfs there, and, and being that you know it's a costume party and it's a lot of fun. And uh-huh. um, you know, so I went to my first one. It was the third year that they had it, and it's you know a combination of houseboats and sailboats and and people building land. And to this day it's grown considerably, and they, yes. you know people actually own a big giant barge that they've rebuilt wow. and uh, and there's different islands and different groups that get together, and every year it changes, so it uh, implements some of these philosophies of seasteading where you know if you didn't get along with your community uh, last year next year you can come together, and if you really you know if your neighbors are bad on their sailboat, you can move your sailboat elsewhere Uh-huh. Um, if this so, year you
1: have a kid and you have a baby, you don't want to be where the music is, you might go to your silent island.
2: Yeah, you get to go over to the quiet island, to the party <laughs> island, exactly.
1: There was also a casino ship involved. Is part of the history of the Sistering Institute.
2: Right.
1: What happened so with the casino?
2: In 2012, a uh, real estate uh, company uh, from uh, Los Angeles had a casino ship that they weren't able to use, and they... Uh, donate it to us. And uh, we looked at it with wide eyes and thought, this is amazing. Look at this giant boat. It was down in Florida. We could totally turn this into the first seastead. Uh, we worked with a uh, partner for a bit on trying to turn it into a boat that could be used as a seastead. and unfortunately, that deal fell apart and ultimately um, we were paying you know a monthly fee to you know store the ship and have the ship watched. And we were dealing with people who, uh, you know, were liars and cheats down in Florida. And uh, ultimately, we ended up selling the ship to somebody that scrapped it. And it was a a hard lesson in, uh, you know, something that you see a ship that's bigger than my house and thinking there's no way that this thing can't be worth some money. And then in the end, selling it for, you know, much less than my house is worth. And, um, you know, that... But but it's a reality that seasteaders, you know, need to bear in mind, which is that, you know, the sea is an expensive place, right? And and we get a lot of, at the Season Institute, this idea of what we should start on cruise ships, you know, has been an idea that's gone around for a long time. Ships require a lot of maintenance, you know, and, and it can be a great life for some people, but it, you know, it's not... It's not just a simple, easy, we'll get a cruise ship. You have to have captains, you have to have flags for them, uh-huh. you have to maintain them. They run a lot of bunker fuel. They have to come out of the uh-huh. water and be cleaned. Um, they're loud. If they're not moving, you know, they, what they say in the shipping industry, you know, if your ship's not moving, it's losing money. And, okay. and basically, we inherited a ship that wasn't moving, so we were losing money on it.
1: So you came as an executive director of the Seasetting Institute in 2012. Yes, correct. And you made the practical decision of starting to focus on international waters and instead look to build assisted on the protected waters of a host nation. Correct. What made you take that practical decision?
2: So there's a, a parallel movement uh, that uh, is going on called like the Charter City Movement or the Startup Cities Movement. And in, in these groups, the idea is get a host nation to give you a section of land. And in that land you could import new rules. And I've watched this movement for a few years and I saw how much difficulty they would have with getting this because people just have a big attachment to their land. Yes. And I, you know, with a great aspirations believe maybe they would feel less attached to their waterways. You know, it's an underused place. Yeah. And we could build seasteads in, in in a bay or an atoll or, you know, a lagoon. Um, without you know displacing anybody that happens to already live on the land, and I also took into account <clears throat> how expensive it is to go out into the open ocean. So it's just even if you have an oil rig, you know, let's say you're you know that that part is accomplished, mm-hmm. you still need to get food supplies. You still need to get internet access. You know you, the satellites are possible, but it's not great. And it and just the, the supplying of a rig that's going to be like technically you'd have to be 12 miles out at sea, but maybe you have to be 24 miles off the country mm. because it depends upon, you know, whether the country thinks you're violating their customs. And if you want to do anything that was underwater, you know, it would be 200 miles or the, or the continental shelf, whichever is longer, to be out of the exclusive economic zone. So it just made more sense for us to have our first foray into seasteading by taking a baby step. Like yeah, uh, so that was my goal was to you know make this a, a practical way to go forward and I, so we at that time uh we connected with our partners in the Netherlands. They had a company at the time called Delta Sync, then they became they also started a company called Blue Twenty One and now they're members of Blue Frontiers. They um we had them uh write a you know, do research on what a Floating City called the Floating City project that yeah. we launched and they did research on the uh, technical side of this, you know, how would you do it engineering wise and environmentally sound, uh, what it could cost. Uh, and then I, uh, internally, we did a bunch of research uh, legally, like which nations looked um, likely for us, what yeah. do, what does the customer want. I did a bunch of interviews with uh, people, did qualitative energy, interviews, calling them up, saying, what, what would you want to be on a Seastead? And then I also, uh, we did a, a online survey and collected data from that, and that survey still exists to this day. It's still collecting data. Yeah, the thousands last time, of people. Yeah, lots of people, many thousands of people. And the last time we actually ran the the data on it was still a couple of years ago, but we're still collecting the data.
1: Wow. How does the 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 search for a host nation look like?
2: Well, you know, it's um taking a you know first we you know, kind of did a survey of nations and tried to think. What nations are most practical? So we we're looking for a place that's small enough that you can get access to the government yes. uh, and talk to them. Uh, you know, small enough that they would see the benefit. You know, imagine yes. trying to go to someplace as big as Mexico or the United States, and there's like, why do we need a little tiny floating island and... with its own you know, like like autonomous government happening? No, uh-huh. it doesn't interest us. Um, we need something that where the you know the additional economy we bring would be attractive to them that okay if you're gonna add you know you know several millions of dollars into our budget each year is that you know attractive or at least into our economy Yes. um and then we need to be someplace that's not gonna get destroyed by a hurricane yes. right That's not gonna get uh hurt by pirates yes. uh, that's not gonna have you know threat of other um you know major uh, violence because of you know this the turmoil in the country so after we you know narrowed that down uh, then we started reaching out to different countries. And this was a matter of uh, just finding connections mm-hmm. and, and like just pushing on these connections and have a meeting with somebody and see if that would take you someplace. And have a meeting with somebody, that would take you someplace. The highest we ever got, we did go into Honduras um, because they already had the program there that mm-hmm. served for the ZAs, yeah. Um And we did spend a good amount of time thinking it was going to happen in Honduras. And unfortunately, that fell apart. Unfortunately, fortunately... Because fortunately we're here in French Uh Polynesia having this interview instead, and (laughs) um, you know I wish the best to all the people of Honduras. I think they could really use the ZA program, but uh, being here compared to there, I feel much uh, safer.
1: How does it feel different this at this part of this part of the history of the Sustaining Institute, where you are creating the floating island project? How does it feel different from Kloppsted, from all the previous attempts I mean, why is this one evidently more successful than the previous ones didn't have
2: sure i mean this is a, um i i i pinch myself every day you know like <laughs> that this is a reality after spending so much time on it and yeah. you know they're going from fantasy to reality is really um it's very pleasing and and it, it's a it's a testament to being um you know, to not giving up, yes. you know, to having patience, uh, you know, to, you know, when people say bad things, not to, you know, let them get in the way yes. when, uh, when it doesn't go the way you want it to, you know, it doesn't mean that it's never going to go the way you want it to. Um, and it's really also a, a testament to the, uh, to the support that the community has provided to the CSA Institute. Yes. If I was, um, just alone with this idea, this wasn't my idea. You know, this was Patrick's idea. You know, Joe's the one that wrote the book on this. I didn't wake up one day and say, "I I have a great idea. I want to build Seasteads. I got invited into this project, and then I thought, you know, and as soon as I was invited, I was like, "This is awesome! I didn't really <laughs> yeah. want to be involved."
0: Uh-huh.
2: But you know, it's still something that I adopted. And um, but knowing every day that I'm a steward of the money and the hopes and the vision. You know, the wishes of these thousands of people who have supported the Sea Institute, uh, you know, made me want to press forward. It made me want to make it happen. So I feel like I'm not doing this for myself. Yeah. I'm doing this because uh, I honestly believe that this would be better for the planet if this happens, better for humanity. And that, you know, we don't need everybody to believe us. We don't even need that many people to get started. There's only room for, mm-hmm. you know, several hundred at, at first. eventually room for thousands and um, you know it it was you know knowing that we had that backing is what uh, made me you know want to keep pushing forward.
1: I know that right now you have 70 professionals dedicating with their time and knowledge every single day of their lives working to making the floating island project a reality. How does it feel?
2: Uh, I mean it's it's great it's it's so amazing I mean it's Sea setting's really cool for the technology. Yeah, it's really cool. We're gonna build, you know, sustainable floating islands that are, are gonna be like all high tech and have Internet of Things and you know solar power and wave energy, and all this stuff. But for me, it's always been the people. And so I like the relationships that are built. Um, I like our weekly meetings. When I see all these people that show up and they're volunteering their time for it, I really like. You know, the uh, the events that we've had and people have come through and they get a chance to chit-chat mm-hmm. with each other. Um, you know, and, and the 70 professionals, that's what's happening at Blue Frontiers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's also the, you know, uh, dozens of emails a day we get yes. of people saying, I want to be a resident. I want to be an investor. I want to come and bring my, my family or my life to... To participate yeah. in this project
1: my technology my, uh, well, I well, yeah
2: i've got the perfect technology for you <laughs> and then also um you know still at the seaside institute you know that's happening there too there's still yes. you know many many dozens of uh you know volunteer ambassadors and people who are donating money to the seaside institute so um yeah all of that uh you know it's it feels good it feels great to be part of such a uh, you know and and sea centers are brilliant people the brilliant people, When you know, when um, you know, we're, we're just a little bit crazy, but we're mostly brilliant. <laughs> you know, it's the pioneering spirit of this group of people. And, you know, when you can get past, you know, on the other side of the email and have a conversation with somebody, and when you get a chance to meet with them in person and they find out what drives them and why they're motivated and why they would be willing to pick up their life wherever they are around the world and transport themselves here to the middle of the ocean to help build a seastead. And then, like, the... Um, it's just this really great group of people to be involved with um, that don't, should not be underestimated by any means.
1: Your wife posted a very beautiful message <laughs> a few days ago about your, your persistence, all the lessons that she has learned from you in this year since you got involved with the Sistering Institute and how much emphasis you put on people. And I personally have felt it. So I thank you, thank you for that. It's It's been also, it's it's great. It's really great to be part of, we are creating the future, you are creating the future. But at the same time, it's the present because, well, as you said, there's at, at least 70 people working every day to make it possible. Besides there's the government, there's the thousands of people that have already contributed somehow. So it's definitely amazing. I know that this amazingness also, as you were saying, has a negative part. So I, what is the craziest thing that people have told you when you say that you are building floating islands? Because you must have received pe- um, people who do not believe, as you said.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, I'm I'm pretty good about shaking off the negative stuff at this point. Yes, that's um,
1: one of the things your wife said. Yeah.
2: <laughs> the. the Unfortunately, um, we live in an era where media is bad. Yes. And and media likes to regurgitate things. They they write articles without taking the time to interview us. Yes. Um, Even if they interview us, they'll they misquote things. And and once you're on the receiving end of media, constantly, you see how bad media is. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm all for you know free press and that there should be media, but it really needs to be taken with a grain of salt because I see how often they get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And and because seasteading setting is never going to be detached from the names of Teal and Friedman, um, we will always have a group of people who, because the world is polarized, see those two people, those two names, as as negative. Mm-hmm. So therefore, they will um, put all of us in a bucket, and and then they will do do a tribalism thing. Mm -hmm. and and want to demean us and um i think it's the the saddest thing about humanity is tribalism um i don't think it benefits us i I understand where it comes from an evolutionary standpoint but i think for humanity to advance it would be sure nice if people became more emotionally mature and were able to uh get on the other side of tribalism now you know in my own personal growth um you know, having grown up a, uh, you know, a, a stalwart Democrat, from you know, liberal family and we'd sit around the table and argue and hate on Republicans. Um, you know, so I was always in that Democrat tribe. Right? I was in the blue tribe. And then when I joined the CESA Institute, it was the first time where I was in the purple tribe, right? The, the, this is where, you know, a lot of people from the, the liberty movement were involved and I was outnumbered and being exposed to people who, once upon a time, I othered. And I thought, they're crazy, they're evil, they, how could they possibly believe this stuff? And then I would find out, oh, well, you know, this is a really nice guy, and there's a lot of good reason to have this belief. This belief isn't any more crazy than this other belief right over here. So being able to be exposed to these different kinds of ideologies uh, allowed me to not feel so attached to one ideology, Mm-hmm. And and coming back to your question about people, uh, you know, saying mean things to you, you know, I I think that um, it's just disappointing when somebody who, you know, you know, even if it's a stranger, you know, one one time there was a article that came out in a, you know, some newspaper and somebody, you know, took the time to write us a nasty email and, and wished that we would all you know, die and sink and whatever, you know, oh, our, yeah. right. So and I took the extra time, like after he sent me this nasty email, uh, you know, look him up and find out he's like some firefighter up in, you know, in California. And he's just so busy assuming the worst of me uh, and the worst of us, because again, the names of, you know, Teal and Friedman are attached and the media writes stories about, you know, billionaire evil people trying to, you know, make uh-huh. sea <laughs> whatever, right. So, you know, and I, I sent him a, a very uh, passive aggressive email uh, uh-huh. you know wishing him the best and you know trying to make him see that on the other side of that email is a real person yes and that real person probably isn't as far away from you as you think you are you yeah. know so I probably care about you know 99% of the same things that that guy cares about so.
1: that is precisely what sistering is about right about bridging and creating places where opportunities for different forms of being and thinking can be possible.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Seaside is about letting people flourish, and let people try new things, and if we can be successful in creating floating islands that are interchangeable, that are affordable, that can be moved around and, you know, uh, life is long but it's short, and Mm -hmm. if you have the time to go you know, experiment with something for a year and it doesn't work for you, and you uh-huh. want to move on. Um,
1: how about the Floating Island Project? So we <coughs> talked about sea stating a lot, now let's move one moment to the present. We are here in Tahiti, in French Polynesia, being marveled at how this project is becoming a reality. Uh, after the signature of the Memorandum of Understanding, there's been a lot going on, and we'll get there eventually. But I want us to talk first on how was what started to happen since you first knew that there was a possibility for creating the sister, the first sister in French Polynesia. How was that since September 2016 to now?
2: Um, sure. So you know, we came to. Tahiti, uh, you know, Mark Collins, one of my partners, uh, reached out to us at the CSA Institute back in like May of 2016, and we started exchanging emails. And I, I like to joke that we were like we were on our first date, you know, testing <laughs> things out. And then, uh, you know, eventually we said, you know, Mark, this looks good. Um, you know, we'll come there if you can get the uh, the government to invite us. And we don't we don't want to just come if it's just for a vacation. I mean, I love the verification yes. here, but it <laughs> wouldn't make sense for the, uh, the financing of it with, uh-huh. the, with the nonprofit's money. And, and Mark being um, well-connected here in Tahiti was able to um, ex- explain to President Fritch why this would be good for his country. And President Fritch sent us a letter and invited us to Tahiti. So we came with a, a delegation of 10, uh, including Nikolaj Germano and, uh, and Igor Rijakov, the, the others, there's five co-founders of Blue Frontiers um, Mark, Nick, myself, Joe Quirk. Igor. Igor. <laughs> and, uh, Blue
1: Frontiers Frontier, cocktail, right? Igor. Right, exactly. <laughs> so
2: um, Mark took us around on uh, a tour. We we explored Tahiti. We explored mm-hmm. um, Rayatea. We went to Bora Bora. We went to Mireya, uh We met with a bunch of different, um, you know, influential people here. We went to the Gump Station and met, you know, with the researchers. We... Uh, met with the vice president, vice president Warfrich at the time. We met with construction companies. We were followed around by a Japanese film crew, and um, you know, then the week culminated with the meeting with the presidency, and uh, and it just went really well. It was yeah. you know, like it, you know, ended with the president saying this, you know, this would be good for his country, and you wanted to work with us. Um, so then we all returned home with big smiles, and mm-hmm. then we worked on this memorandum of understanding together, and we did. You know, several back and forths on that, which was an opportunity for both parties to better understand the, each other's needs so they could understand what is it that you know, people from the seasteading community want in, in order to launch a floating non-project, and we could understand better what does a government need in order for us to come and be a part of it. Uh, and in that MOU, there uh, we, we were basically four major obligations. Uh, one was that we were going to do an environmental assessment. Uh, the other is that we were going to do an economic impact study. The third is that we would do the legal research for them to show them how they could create this special economic zone for us that we're calling a C-Zone. And lastly, that we promised that we're not going to take any taxpayer money to do it. This is something we fund ourselves. So uh, then we launched the company. Well, actually, so in January, um, the government came to San Francisco. And in San Francisco, we had an MOU signing. And at that point, we launched the company. Um we hired staff, we did our obligations in writing this environmental framework report, we hired out uh, economic uh, a company to do the economic impact study, we hired a law firm in French, or in France to do our legal research for us, uh, and we're still committed to not taking any tax money.
1: Which so, is great. Great point, and yeah, I mean, it's
2: very different. It's very different because most companies that you know or projects that come to a place like Tahiti come and say, Hey, we got a really big development we want to do, Uh but we need you to fund it, right? And and then you know, you're just shuffling money from uh, you know, working people to the hands of developers, and you know, we're saying, Let's flip this around. This isn't a isn't, let, let's prove that we can do this on our own you know, with, our, with people that want to be invested in seasteading or that want to be invested in blue frontiers. Let's not go you know, take the government money to prove, prove ourselves. Uh, and and the, the other term to that is that we're also asking the government you know, f- to be a special economic zone. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, in other places in the world, it's, you know, people will make us a special economic zone. We're not going to pay taxes, but we're going to use your taxes to make our zone. Uh-huh. And, I mean, that's unfair right so we just want to be uh be fair to our we want to be honest and authentic with ourselves and we want to be fair to the government we're working with and to the people around us so um we turned in our studies uh in, in the you know this fall and they're now under review with uh with the government and we expect the legislative package to get passed uh in um you know early 2018 Uh, We also have done design concepts. We've done. uh, We've had a you know a small event here in Tahiti with a group of uh, potential investors. We've had a uh, our staff house in Tahiti that a lot of people have cycled through. We've done a lot of community engagement here on the ground. Um, Joe and I have toured the world this year, uh, sharing the the story and in preparing people to uh, invest or become residents. We
1: did a conference we, in May. We, oh yeah, big we did the conference. One. We had a yeah. big conference yeah, <laughs> in May,
2: exactly, so we brought about a hundred people from around the world uh, to participate and that's where we got many of these uh, volunteers from. About half of the people that came from the conference have stayed actively engaged as volunteers on the project.
1: Which says a lot about what you're doing here.
2: Yeah, absolutely, you know, and it's a, it's a great place. It's a great place. Um, you know, it. Uh, it dawned on me, since I've been here now for two months, I, I used to, um, a moment ago we said, when you did the research on the Flint Island project, we got to find a place that's hurricane free. We got to find a place that could, you know, have internet, et cetera, so forth. So when we look at Tahiti, you're like, well, Tahiti, unlikely, they do have tropical storms. But they don't get hit very often and not very hard. Um, they got internet, they've got modern infrastructure. If you go into the major supermarket here, you'd think you're in France. Yes. Um, you know, they have yeah, <laughs> um you know, so they have all you know, they have a good supply chain, and they, people that need jobs, it's you know, it's a great place for all these all of those reasons. Yes. But there's something else about this place. And uh, the real reason we're here, I think now. Is that it's just the best place on the planet. Mm-hmm. It, it's, the, you know, they, they talk about the mana. You know, right. the place has the energy, and you know, coming to realize like what pulled us here. Like, did we, did we, did we choose this place or did it choose us? You know, how do you untangle? How, how come now there's, you know, so many people from Blue Frontiers and Seasteading involved in this? Um, and, you know, how come, you know, I mean, it was just when you go out. You know, yesterday I spent the day on a va'a, which is, you know, the, the tradi- traditional canoe, uh, you know, just <laughs> in the waters here. And, you know, the weekend before that, I went out and you know, did some jet skiing and, and went hanging out with a, with pilot whales and dolphins. And then you know, before that, I was scuba diving with, a you know, at a shark feeding opportunity. And There's just so much, you know. And then, of course, the people that come over to our house and they participate in our workshops and and that we've gotten to know and become friendly with and realize that this is just really an incredible place. And I think that we have a lot of opportunity for one another where the French Polynesians, um, they're they're smart people, they're they're loving people, um, they're they're forward-thinking people, but they're here in the middle of the ocean. And it's hard for them to have access to all the things that we have access to back in Silicon Valley or elsewhere in the world. And, you know, I think that the conduit that the Florida Island Project will have, that Blue Frontiers is going to have for Tahiti, is going to really yeah. be a good synergy with what they already have here.
1: Yes, I agree. I agree. You mentioned all the people that come here to the house, to the temporary Blue Frontiers headquarters in Tahiti. Last week, there was... A Bitcoin workshop where some of our friends came. Can you tell us a bit what we
2: did? Well, uh, you know, there's not many places uh, in Tahiti, if any, that uh, <laughs> had Bitcoin before we showed up. So uh, our friend <laughs> Rob Viglione, who's one of the professionals that's working on the project, uh, and is the creator of Zincash, uh-huh. was here for one of our workshops we did this um, past uh, fall, and uh, we it went well with him, even though it was a small group, and we said, you could start hearing buzz and, and what happened is um you know we're planning to do an ico to raise funding for this project and that got out you know into the media and was the head you know the front cover of the local paper here yeah It was the first time the local paper had did a full story about ico's and bitcoin and what uh-huh. that is so we figured we should uh, we should teach people about it so we had a small group about eight people that came over and enough for a first pass for me but we were able to teach them you know the uh the why what a blockchain is what a bitcoin is how it works this way what the future promises of it and then we were able to help them download apps and uh, and we gave them out some uh some some dash and some zcash <laughs> and some bitcoin
1: there are some that are now more in that are um now interested and want to do the second part of the workshop. Yeah. What's the plan with this workshops? Oh,
2: I've been paying my French teacher in Bitcoin here.
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. She must be very excited.
2: Yeah, she's doubled her money so yeah. far in her, her That's classes. really, yeah. really
1: cool. So what are the aspects what are the business opportunities for French Polynesia after the floating island is built and during its planning phase?
2: I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, it, when we're building an entire ecosystem, yes. there's going to be an entire ecosystem of businesses around it. Yes. So, you know, from the, the point of view of our economic impact study, you know, it looked pretty like, you know, just kind of at a, at a raw study. They, they do these same study all around the world. You know, how many inputs and how many outputs do you have? You have to create this much infrastructure. How many jobs does that create in terms of construction? How many jobs are in a hotel? How many jobs are in a restaurant? Um I think that there's some that we just don't know yet, uh-huh. but, you know, between the partners that we're talking with and the people that I think will want to come and, you know, either be here full or part-time, um, it's just going to have everything, you mm-hmm. know, I and mean, it'll be, I'll have, you know, from, from people that want to do, you know, uh, tech computer work, blockchain type stuff, to yes. people who would rather, uh, or are interested in uh, ocean research. Yes. Um, but, you know, there's also a lot of people that reach out to us and they say, I just want to I want to have the movie theater on the c oh. I want to have the, uh, you know, the, oh. the, the the I want to be the barista. So, you know, I think just like any community, um, but I also think this will be a very exceptional community, as yes. I said before, that uh, people are going to be attracted to it. Are You
1: know, usually the people who are attracted to c is because, as you said, they are at the most fair head of cool mm-hmm. tech.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Cool tech and cool things. Right. Cool tech and cool thinking. How do you envision the growth of the sistering movements fifty years from now?
2: Well, I usually let Joe Quirk do that. is <laughs> <laughs> pretty okay, good too. Thirty years <laughs> from now, ten years from now. What I'd like to see ten years from now <laughs> is I'd like to see that this first project has been wildly successful and that we're well beyond three hundred people. We're into thousands of people. We've, uh, you know, kind of filled up as much space as, as, as reasonably possible without having a negative impact on on the local you know island here because uh, eventually it could, it could get too big. But, um, yeah, and then there's – and I'd like to know that we've been able to perfect our building opportunities. So we're not building, we're manufacturing. Yes. So that we're able to, at that point, produce these islands for, you know, a tenth of the cost of the first one. I mean, d- don't take my word on that because you should still buy into the first one. <laughs> don't wait for Generation 10. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's what I'd like to see happen. And I'd like us then to be able to export <laughs> the islands um, first to places here in Polynesia that are threatened by the rising seas that could use them, you know, and then, you know, elsewhere in the South Pacific, the same thing, uh, you know, Kiribati and, and whatnot are losing land. Um, and also, of course, to coastal nations. And and I'd like Yay. to believe that um, we'll we'll do more in the open ocean um, at least in terms of energy harvesting and food harvesting. You know how how soon we get to open ocean living. Um, yes. I think that it's still a, a hard uh, one to tackle to be comfortable out there. But I'd like to see. I mean, it's already happening around the world with good food production in the open ocean. Yes. And I, you know, one of the things that pains me the most is knowing that we, you know, how much we just treat the oceans as a hunting grounds rather than you know, we, we, you know most. Uh, you know, civilized societies are, are farming now, right? And I even think that farming is going to be replaced by a, you know a non non kill foods that will be able to do yes. lab grown meats. But yes. in in the meantime, I think that um, you know f- f- caged fish in the open seas, as opposed to caged fish in ponds, yes. is is a better for the planet opportunity. Um, I think that the seaweed thing is yeah. interesting and could be better for the planet. Um and then of course we do know that there's so much energy out in the ocean and mm-hmm. as we bring the cost down to harvest that energy, um I think it'll be a good thing.
1: And you are working in that direction. I know that mm-hmm. there was a, there have been a lot of discussions on whether to be connected to the shore or not, whether the seasted uh, will have a backup resource of energy, Mm -hmm. whether to connect to cable, to the cable of the internet or look into satellites.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you
0: know,
2: it won't be a satellite in the near future, but Mm -hmm. uh, it could be a a laser or microwave that's aimed out at the seastead, so we don't have to run a a cable back to shore. And that decision, you know, our preference is to not be tethered. Yeah. We'll see uh, what engineers can do with this. So I'm not the engineer.
1: But they are working on you. You they have a cool, very, very, yeah. very smart people. Yeah. Oh, what would be your ideal, that?
2: My ideal deck? Yours, day?
1: personal.
2: Well, you know, like I would like to have a, uh, a bedroom window that's an aquarium where the nice. fish come and look at me. <laughs> I'd like to get up in the morning and be around amazing people who will uh, do some yoga with me, maybe <laughs> go kite surfing. Yes. Um, you know, and then be able to have really interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, I'd like to see us employ the kind of governance we can within you know our our framework that uh, is novel yes. and is, and you know it's innovative. And if it doesn't work, we try something different the next year. Yes. So that we can continue to evolve that, and that we can then export these things that we succeed at to to other places. Um, I'd like for it to be very inclusive so that, uh, you know, just like, you know, this house has been, you know, the the, the Blue Frontiers headquarters this past month has had people come through from, you know, England, Japan, the Netherlands, Russia, uh, Colombia. (laughs) um, I'm sure I'm missing places.
1: Uh, Netherlands, Italy.
2: Italy, yeah. So, So, I mean, just Age the the, uh, the worldliness of it, you know, being exposed to different people, different ideas, I think is good for all of us. And um, yeah, and then I like to go, you know, scuba diving frequently <laughs> and surfing and you know, enjoy a good life on a seaside.
1: Yes. You know. When you were mentioning everything you did last week from dolphins, whales, sharks, stingrays, mm-hmm. it sounds almost unreal. Mm-hmm. but I, I can testify that it's true. <laughs> it's not a lie. It does happen. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I wish I
2: was working less and doing more of that. Unfortunately, <laughs> I, I, you know, the, the, the office has been great. I have a great view from the couch I work at as I look out uh, across the Pacific to the island of Morea. but um, I, you know, there's lots of emails to answer right now uh, and, and lots of planning to do, and I look forward to being on the other side of the uh, the project to being able to relax.
1: Oh, I'm sure you'll get there. <laughs> thank you very, very much for being here.
2: Well, thank you, Natalie, and thank you for all the work you're doing for Blue Frontiers and Seasteading, and uh, you've been a great contribution to us. So we're really happy to have you mm-hmm. out there, really happy to <laughs> have you uh, uh, explaining to the world uh, what this is all about. Because I think that uh, you have a, a great talent for this. So thanks.
1: Oh, no, thank you for this amazing opportunity. It's a great project to be working on. It's mm-hmm. really amazing. And it's real, mm-hmm. It this it is it's real. I've just pinched Randy. Well, many, 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 many hugs to everybody. Thank you very much, Randy, and...
2: We'll talk again. This is probably just the first. So absolutely. And we, and we, we covered a lot in, uh, in 45 minutes, but um, I'm, I'm sure
0: there's more yeah. for us
1: to discuss. We need to talk about the ICO.
0: Yeah, we'll have to do an ICO Next podcast.
1: Thanks the ICO. All right. Okay. Ciao. Bye.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Blue Frontiers podcast. To learn more about our work and find out how you can support the project, visit blue-frontiers.com or visit our social channels. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Blue Frontiers, or shoot us a note via our website. If you learned something and enjoyed the show, Tell a friend or leave us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. Don't forget to subscribe to our show and remember to join us for the next episode. See you next time.
1: Our closing tune was written by Metua Heimatari, Mata from Tahiti.